overnight, Iranian forces in Syria launched at least 20 rockets on Israeli positions. Our instant index tonight begins with a big headline, the end of the world. The government and witnesses there say a hotel and other buildings have collapsed after a magnitude 6.4 earthquake. It's always the challenge when you have great worship going on and then all of a sudden you have this bumper that jerks you back to reality. And that's the world we live in, a world where there is a lot of pain and hurt and questions about when is this all going to end, is it going to get better, while we're also worshiping and praising God. And that's why we're in this study on the book of Revelation. So turn your Bibles open, if you will to Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. You could call it revelation as well, because God reveals his will for the past, the present, and the future, Revelation chapter 4. Now, I know that we have a lot of our students back from mission trips. Uh, do we have any junior hires that are back from your Colorado trip? Can you wave your hands at me? All right, or, or sponsors up high? All right, let's give it up for them, all right? Yeah. And, uh, and how about uh, senior high uh, from your trips that you've been on? We have senior highers in the, in the room. Let's give it up for them as well. All right. And uh, for everybody else that's been stuck at home, God bless you. All right. So Revelation chapter 4, that gave you enough time to find it. It's not really that hard. It's the last book in the Bible. Now, as we... Uh, come to chapter 4, we in essence join the Apostle John who's been taken up into heaven and he is in the throne room of God. And what he experiences is beyond human description, but the, you have to use your imagination, otherwise how can he convey it? So he uses the most imaginative language. He describes God on the throne. He talks about spectacular and amazing colors. He talks about supernatural beings like the 24 elders or the living creatures and eyes, you know, all around the creatures. He talks about lightning strikes and, you know, roars of thunder and a glassy sea. It's all a very amazing picture. But as we go through the book of Revelation, I need to ask you, when we run into these signs and run into these symbols and descriptions, it's like being in the, in the trees and not seeing the forest. If you get too locked into the details and the, and the strangeness and the imagery, you'll miss the big picture. So there's a sense in which you read about the trees, but you got to stand back and see the big picture of the forest. Now, in a few moments, we'll come back to Revelation chapter 4 because it answers one of the most important questions you will ever ask. In fact, I would say it is the most important question that you'll ever ask, it gives an answer to it. We'll ask the question and look at the answer in a few moments. But I want you to flip over or look over at chapter 5 now of Revelation because in the same scene, God sees in the right, or John sees the right hand of God a scroll. Now, it's a scroll that's written on the inside and the outside. It's a scroll with seven seals. 
It says that a mighty angel in verse 2 asks a question, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one responds. As a result of that, it says in verse 4, John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Why does John weep? Why does he cry about this situation? Remember, John's immediate audience are believers living in the second half of the first century, believers who are suffering and being persecuted for the faith in Christ. And so John's looking for an answer, a resolution. Imagine we didn't have the words of Jesus about his second coming or the prophecy of Revelation or Daniel. It would be like us not knowing what happens next, what's going to happen to the world, where's our place in all of this. We'd be, we'd be distraught about it. And so that's why I think John is distraught. It's like, is there a solution? Is there an answer to the terrible things that are taking place? And one of the 24 elders taps him on the shoulder. And in verse 5 says, do not weep. In other words, stop your crying. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Yeah, interesting. Now, that's a description of Jesus. Here he's called a lion, right? Triumphant, king of the beast, so to speak. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, he's able to open it because he has triumphed. Well, how has he triumphed? Verse 6 answers it. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So, you know, the lambs were cut at the neck and bled out, offered as sacrifices. So here's this strange picture. Jesus portrayed as a lion, but also as a slaughtered lamb. He is triumphant. But in order to be triumphant, he had to sacrifice. And it's because of that sacrifice and his triumph that he's able to own the deed of history, so to speak. He's able now to open those scrolls and the things that go with it as a result. He goes on, he says in verse 6, And I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits to God, that, excuse me, of God sent out into all the world. A reference to the Holy Spirit, his perfect ministry. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, turn over to chapter 6, because he's about to... Um, open the seals. And with the opening of each seal, there's going to be judgment that begins to take place. Now, I believe that the first four seals are already in effect. And they are less the divine judgment of God and more the consequences of sinful behavior, the first four. In other words, God doesn't have to do a lot of judging. If I tell you right now, don't put your hand in that open flame, and you do, what happens? You get burned, right? And it's your own fault because you chose to disobey. Well, so much that we suffer in this world is our own fault. In a sense, we bring on that judgment by disobeying God. So let's take a quick look here. First seal is open up in verse 2. He says, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Some people say, well, that's a picture of Jesus. I don't agree with that. Remember in Daniel 2, our first message? If you missed it, you can go online and see the messages. We said that 
Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that he had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a vision given to him by God, and Daniel interprets it for him. And he basically tells Nebuchadnezzar, here's your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. Then he describes successive kingdoms that are going to come to this earth, and every kingdom comes and goes. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Same thing will be true with America and every other nation in this world. And so ever since mankind rebelled, man has been going out trying to conquer the world, setting up states and nations and powers and countries. But they come and they go. But one day, according to the prophecy, and we'll talk more about this in weeks to come, there will come a final world ruler called the Antichrist. And in essence, what he will do is he will rally the world against God and against God's people. You see, you feel, you sense that in throughout history and especially in these days with a very anti-God, anti-believer, true believer of Christ kind of sentimentality or attitude in our world today. Second horse is described as a fiery red horse. And this horse takes peace away from the world. Well, since Genesis 3, there's not been peace in this world. You can cry, sing, call out for peace all you want. It has small and measured effects, but there will never be true peace until Christ comes and reigns. The third seal is broken, and out comes the black horse. This is famine. This is pestilence. We've had that ever since man rebelled. And finally, you get the fourth seal opened up, and out comes the pale horse, and his name is death. And so now death through famine, through plague, through pestilence assaults the earth. That's been always going on. But as Jesus said in Matthew 24, as, as we get near the return of Christ, it's like a woman in labor. The birth pains get closer and closer, more intense and more intense. I believe we'll see these riders, all symbolic, right? We'll see this intensification of disease and pestilence, of death, of famine, of warring nations. Jesus said, kingdom will fight against kingdom. So this is really a reiteration of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. Then we get to the fifth seal. It says in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls. Now, you can't take that literally. All right? This is symbolic language. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So these are martyrs. Up to this very day, people are being martyred for their faith. In fact, it is said that in the last century, more people were martyred than all history before. So there are people to this very day dying for their faith, and they cry out and they say to God, God, when will this end? When will you take vengeance upon those who, who kill your followers? And God says, wait. When the time is fulfilled, when all those who will die for my cause have died, then I'm going to act. And then we get to the sixth seal in verse 12. It says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. The sun turned black, it's all symbolic, I think. Moon turned blood red. Stars and sky fell to earth. Heavens receded like a scroll. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, we're going to see as we move through Revelation, after the seven seals, there's going to be seven trumpets and seven bowls of judgment. I'll explain this more beginning next weekend. But, but each successive set of judgments is a magnification of the previous set. So the seven trumpets magnify the seventh seal, and the seven bowls magnify the seventh trumpet. 
We're seeing a, a picture of the same thing is what I'm trying to say. It just, it's like a microscope gets dialed down further and further. You see more detail to it as each one is unleashed. Look at the reaction of mankind to this in verse 15 and 16. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the, what? Lamb. From the wrath of the Lamb. So he sacrifices his life. He triumphs over death. But one day, God is going to bring things to an end. Jesus, yes, the Jesus of the Gospels is going to bring the wrath of God. The world will be judged. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? That day is, is coming. Now, in order for us to understand what we're going to be talking about in the book of Revelation, I have a homework assignment for you this week. Are you ready? I want you to read Exodus chapter 1 through 13. What is Exodus chapter 1 through 13? It's the story of Moses delivering, actually God using Moses to deliver the people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. It is a paradigm. It is a picture of what's going to happen at the end of time. Pharaoh, like the Antichrist. Egypt, the world power. The Israelites, God's people, Jew and Gentile believers, held and oppressed. God finally saying, let my people go. I will not let your people go. God brings wrath and judgment, pours it out with the 10 plagues. When he gets the 10th plague, what do we notice about the 10th plague? The 10th plague affects everybody. And God says, tell my people that the only way they can avoid the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn, is they must kill a lamb, smear its blood on the doorpost, and hide under the cover of the blood. And when the angel of death passes by, their lives will be spared. And they did, and they were. But the firstborn of Egypt suffered the wrath of God. Isn't it interesting when you get to John chapter 1, as John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, sees Jesus and is pointing him out to others. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb's blood is smeared on the cross. And all those who hide under the cover of the cross, that is, put their faith in Christ, repent of their sins, are protected from the wrath of God. For all of us deserve the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. For all that sin and come short of the glory of God, our righteousness is as filthy rags, and the verses in the Bible go on, but grace covers our sins, the blood of Christ, which always raises a question. And the question is this. If you're alive as a follower of Jesus, when this sixth seal is open, and I mean all chaos breaks out and judgment begins, where will you be? And we'll answer that question next weekend. And the reason we're going to answer that next weekend is because i got to answer a more important question back in Revelation chapter 4. So turn back there again, will you please? It's the most important question you'll ever ask in life. And here it is. You ready? The question is, what's for lunch today? I'm just kidding. That's what you're thinking about, right? The question is this. What is the essence of life? What is the essence of life? What is the meaning of your life? Whether you are a child, a student, an adult, what is the meaning of your life? Let me broaden that out and say, what is the meaning of the purpose of your family? 
Let me broaden that out further. What is the meaning and the purpose of this church? Let me go to what is the meaning and purpose of this nation? What is the meaning and the purpose of this universe? You probably all heard of John Lennon, member of the great band, the Beatles, was you know, killed, shot to death, and I think it was Hawaii, sad story. But he says that when he was a little boy, about five years of age, his mother said to him, John, the key to life, the meaning of life, the essence of life is happiness. That's the key to life. Lennon says, I then went to school, and the teacher asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I said, happy. And the teacher said to me, you don't understand the assignment. And I said to the teacher, you don't understand life. Smart Alec. Let me ask you a question. Is that right? Is the, is the meaning of life happiness? It seems like it. I mean, you, you hear people sing about it all the time. You hear preachers preach about it. You hear or read books read about it. You watch videos, movies about it. And, you know, we all are, we're all looking for happiness. But the problem is happiness is fleeting. It's like sand. It just goes to your hands. You can't keep it. I'm happy today, but tomorrow my circumstances may change. There may be loss, financial, physical, health issues. There may be bullies on the playground. I mean, all kinds of things. It is really hard to hang on to happiness. Well, that's because happiness is not the meaning of life. Happiness is not the essence of life. Well, happiness is not the essence of life. The meaning of life, what is? Revelation chapter 4 tells us. Here we go. Ready? We're going to begin at verse 2. At once I was in the spirit. There before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. The throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. There are seven, these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne were, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now, that's where you got to stand back from the trees. It, you miss the entire story of Revelation if you get focused and analytical about all these numbers and supernatural beings and imagery. Here's what it's all about. Here's where we're supposed to focus. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what it's all about. The other stuff is, is background. Whenever the living creatures are, excuse me, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy. 
our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. See, anybody can read the book of Revelation and understand it. If you focus on the right things, if your focus is on all these beings and imagery, yes, it's very confusing. But if you focus on what is the true object of it, you'll understand it. And so the true object of Revelation of the Bible, the essence of life is this. The essence of life is to worship God. That's it, to worship God. That is your purpose in life. If you've ever wondered, what's my purpose in life? You just, you just found it. To worship God. What's the purpose of Whitdale Church? To worship God. What's the purpose of the universe? To worship God. We all need to worship. Even the atheist needs to worship. It is intrinsic. It is wired into us. We have to worship. It's how we were made. It's how we were established. We all need to worship. Turn for a moment over to Psalm 19, would you please? Because Psalm 19 uh, gives us a picture of this idea that we all need to worship because even nature must worship. Psalm 19. I remember I memorized this many, many years ago in the King James, but nobody speaks King James anymore. <clears throat> Psalm 19, verse 1. David writes and says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. You hear what he's saying? He's saying all creation worships God and it doesn't say a thing. In fact, it even stimulates us to worship God. I mean, Minnesota is truly one of the most beautiful of our 50 states, at least in the spring, summer, and fall. <laughs> if you enjoy winter, you could say that as well. But have you ever just stood on a, on, on a placid, still lake? The sun is setting, the loon or loons are calling. And if it's fall, it's so incredibly beautiful. What do you think about? I don't know about you, but it always lifts my attention to something greater than myself. So whether you're standing in a lush valley or looking at a mountain peak or watching the, the waves of the ocean or watching the wild animal or the domesticated animal or the stars and the, and, and the sun and the moon and the sky, or whether you're looking into the, child of a, uh, into the face of a brand-new infant child, I don't know about you, but it just causes you to, to wonder what more is there? Who made all this? There has to be a reason behind this, and there's just something in you that wants to worship. Now, you may end up worshiping the creation like a lot of people do, but there's something in you that wants to worship. So I don't know if I agree with that. Maybe you are here, maybe you know somebody who says, I, I don't believe in God, therefore I just don't worship God, and I don't think I worship, period. I don't worship. Let me give you some examples of how we worship when we don't think we are worshiping. Tim Keller commenting on worship points out some of these. I just want to emphasize and maybe broaden them a little bit. Take sports, for instance. How many football fans in the room? All right, good. I won't ask you what team, but let's assume most of you are Vikings fans, all right? And last year, what a ride, huh? So what happens when the football game, it's once a week, right? 
is on, usually on the weekend, interestingly, a lot of times on Sunday, usually right at noon. Uh, what do we do? We get excited about it, right, if you're a football fan. You get so excited that, that if it's a really important game, if they're playing somebody like the Packers, you will actually come maybe Saturday night to worship so you can watch the game. Or you'll say to yourself, I'll watch the service later online, and I'm going to watch the game. And then you dress appropriately. You put on the jersey. And you go out and you buy a feast, right? And you get your favorite beverages. You get your favorite food, kind of like communion, right? And then you invite, you invite your neighbors and your friends to come over and all of you together sit around the glowing box and you will go through all kinds of, of ways of worship. You will fall to your knees at times. You will raise your hands at times. You will jump. You will even dance in praise at times, right? You'll get excited. You will abandon. Who cares what anybody else thinks? What are you doing? You're worshiping. That's worship. That's what it is. It's an act of worship. Or how about sex in our culture today? Keller says we worship sex. He's right. We, we are a culture, I'm not saying you specifically, but we are a culture that is obsessed with sex. And we look to sex for gratification. We look to sex for pleasure. We look to sex almost like a drug to at least temporarily allow us to escape our, our issues, and our concerns, to be caught up in this experience. And it is addictive. We pay a lot and we give a lot to have that experience. That's worship. How about art? My, um, our, our, Marsha and I, our son and his wife and our grandkids live in Vienna, Austria. He's the principal of a, of a Christian school. I've told you that before. They have almost 50% of the kids are not, church, are not Christians. They don't come from a believing background. So it's a tremendous place to minister which otherwise is very hard. And so whenever we go visit them, we go to the museums because they have wonderful museums there. And I realize they have museums here as well, art museums. But have you ever walked into an art museum? Have you ever noticed it's like, a, it's, like, it's like going to church? There's an ambiance that's set. There are people in suit coats that look very stern that watch you. Have you ever watched people in the art galleries? They stand like this. And if you talk loud, people go, shh. You do not talk in front of the art. We whisper. Very reverential. That is called worship. And how about celebrities? What, is cele what are celebrities all about? Sports celebrities, sports stars, movie stars, you know, pop stars, video stars. What is that all about? Do you know that a celebrity wouldn't exist if we didn't make them celebrities? How do you make a person a celebrity? You praise them. You follow them. You talk about them. You get up at five in the morning to watch them get married. And they don't know who you are. And they didn't invite you. But you want to peer in and watch them. What is it about celebrities? There is something intrinsic in us. We want to give our attention. We want to give our our sense of worth to something or someone greater than ourselves. Everybody worships. Just the question is, who or what am I worshiping? I'm not against, you know, you liking celebrities. I'm not against sports. I'm not against art. I'm not, you know, and sex in its proper place between a husband and wife and marriage. I'm not against that. But when we say we don't worship, we're lying to ourselves. Because get any of those things out of place and you give it what God deserves. 
in that sense, we all worship. How do we worship? How do we worship? Well, all we have to do is look back again at this passage of Scripture. Come back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. It says, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. They fall down before him and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. They take those crowns, gold crowns, I don't know, they take those crowns, and they take all that worth and that value that's been given to them, and they lay it in front of God. And they do that because, in essence, what they're saying is, God, you're worth more than all the gold in the world. Jesus gives us a wonderful picture of this over in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to turn there with me for a moment. Matthew chapter 13, Keller was commenting on this, and I saw it, and I thought, wow, this, this is so right. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it's such a small, short parable, we oftentimes miss it, but this, is, this helps me understand what it means to worship. It says, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, let's modernize this for a moment. Imagine it's you. Let's say you live in a $100,000 house. Next to you is this field that's just filled with weeds and thorns. And you wish you could buy it, but you can't. It costs more than $100,000. It's too expensive for you. And too expensive for anybody in the block because nobody's bought it, but it's an eyesore. One day you're walking by it, disgusted, and a stranger walks up to you, and they say to you, there's a treasure buried in that field, and here's the map. And they just walk away. And you keep walking, you keep thinking to yourself, that's a joke. If there's really a treasure in this field, somebody would have dug it up by now. If this must be, I mean, I bet you they got secret cameras around here, and they, they're just waiting to see what fool will believe that lie and start digging it up, and then they're going to embarrass me on national television. But you keep thinking about it and thinking about it, and so you decide one night under a moonlit sky to sneak out of the house. You don't tell your spouse. You grab a spade from, or a shovel from the garage, you take your map out and you foolishly count off all the paces, all the different angles until you finally get to X marks the spot and you start to dig. And you dig a foot down, you dig two feet down and you're feeling kind of foolish now. You're thinking this is a big joke. Somebody's getting a good laugh at me right now out in the middle of this field. You dig three feet down, nothing, and you just decide to yourself, I'm going to just try one more time, and I'm going home. I feel like such a fool. And you stick that shovel in, and thunk, you hit something. You get kind of excited. Your heart starts to beat a little bit faster. He cleared away, and you see, you see what appears to be a chest. Now you're digging, man. The dirt's just coming out all over the place. You're down there four feet until you uncover this massive chest. You break the lock open. You Take the lid and you prop it up, and there in the moonlight are shimmering gold coins. And about now, your heart's about ready to beat out of the chest. You're like, man, I hope nobody's watching this. I hope nobody's seeing this. And you quickly cover it all up as fast as you can. You run home. You run upstairs. You wake your spouse up. You wake your wife up or your husband up. And you say, we're selling everything. We're buying that field next door. We're going to sell everything. Even if we have to sell the kids, we're selling everything got to have what's in that field. She looks at you, or he looks at you and says, what is wrong with you? Are you out of your mind? No, 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 you don't understand. We have to have that field. 
Why? Because what's in that field is worth more than everything else that we have. And you would sell everything to have it, wouldn't you? If you knew it was worth more. God is worth more. And so what do these people do? How do you know when somebody's really, really met God, really worshiping God? They become extremely generous and abandoned with their lives. When I say generous, I mean not just financially. I mean just generous. They just, they just give God everything because God is worth so much more. I'll never forget Jack Hayford years ago at a conference, a Promise Keepers conference in Atlanta that I attended, standing on stage and telling us that a few weeks before he'd been in India teaching pastors and, and uh, they had a worship service and he said they were really into the worship and he said they were dancing and carrying on and he said he, he thought it was just a little bit too much and he's, you know, four square, he's um, charismatic to begin with so it must have really been something, right? And so he pulls them aside afterwards and says, you know, guys, I think you got a little bit carried away. You need to have some dignity and reverence here when you're, you know, worshiping God. He said he went home and he was in a study and he was spending time with God in prayer, and God spoke to him. And, and Hafer's one of those people that God has truly spoken to at times. And he said, God said to me, Jack, I want you to get up and dance for me. And Hafer said, I started to argue with God. I don't know how to dance. And Hafer said, God said to me, then why did you tell those men who were dancing before me to stop? Who are you to decide how they should worship me. David danced in his underwear. Who are you to tell these men how to worship me? I had pleasure in that. Now you get up and dance for me, and I'll never forget the scene. Here's Jack Hayford on that stage, and he begins to pick his feet up. I can't dance, he says, but I got up in my study, and I started just raising my feet before God. See, God's worth it. God's worth becoming humanly undignified in this culture to praise him and to honor him and to glorify him.